We're in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17. And our great theme and title for the the message this morning is uh, simply this, all fulfilled in Christ. All fulfilled in Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will extol the kind of conduct that ought to be seen in a Christian because of the kind of character that a Christian now has. You don't develop character out of a certain type of conduct. You develop conduct out of a certain type of character. Uh, You can train, you can even enforce a certain type of conduct. But enforced conduct does not not necessarily guarantee an inner change of character. But a true inner change of character must bear fruit in changed conduct. Jesus is keen to make the point here that what he's talking about is not in any way doing away with the law of God. But actually, he seeks to bring us into a proper and correct perspective and understanding about the law of God. One of the key features of this is that whereas the likes of the Pharisees were all about what we must do for God, Jesus will emphasise what he has come to do for us. The first thing that we need to properly do is identify what it is that Jesus is referring to when he speaks of the law or the prophets. What primarily does he have in view? Now the phrase the law can apply in a number of different ways. It can be used kind of fairly loosely to speak of the entire Old Testament. You can quite legitimately call all of the things that are written down in the Old Testament as the law of God. The whole thing is is God's law. Uh, Frequently and more specifically, it relates uh, often to the first five books in the Old Testament, sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses, in which are found three different types of law which God gave to Old Testament Israel. In the books of Exodus and Leviticus, towards the end of Exodus and through Leviticus. After their release from captivity in Egypt, God gave to Israel, first of all, instructions as to how he is to be worshipped. He gave them uh, rituals and regulations governing all of those things. The tabernacle, which was basically a portable temple that they could take with them wherever they went, the tabernacle was to be built and furnished as a place of worship. Instructions were given as to all of the various elements and activities that would constitute worship within the tabernacle. A priesthood was to be established. Those men would serve Israel by conducting that worship on their, on their behalf before God in the tabernacle. And all of that was laid down in very considerable detail And together, all of that is commonly referred to as the ceremonial law. It governed the worship life of Israel. 
And then alongside that was what we might call the civil law. That's the law that governed the national life of Israel as a nation. It governed them in their relationships with one another. It laid down a legal system and a process of justice where rights could be wronged, or where the guilty could be punished and so forth. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that all of the civil law has to be now replicated amongst all the other nations in the world. Although it is true to say that many of the principles that you'll find there, they have stood the test of time, which is not surprising given who they came from, and they have actually greatly influenced lawmakers and leaders of nations over the centuries, our own included. The third aspect of the law in the Old Testament narrows it down even more specifically and it's referring to God's moral law which governs everyone. All of those things that Paul talks about in his opening chapters of Romans about those things that people actually truly do know because it's there within their conscience. That's all bound up in this moral law of God. And of course in the Bible we find that summarised wonderfully in the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. God's moral standard of behaviour for all people in all places and at all times, never having been revoked. And the main focus of what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 5 primarily concerns this moral law of God and a proper understanding of it and a proper obedience to it. Jesus makes it crystal clear in, in verses 17 and 18, as he will do elsewhere on many occasions, that as far as the moral law of God is concerned, nothing has changed and his coming into the world hasn't changed it either. In verse 19, Jesus states very emphatically that this law still matters, still has relevance, and still has application. The grace of God, which has been so fully demonstrated in and through Jesus, in no way cancels this law out. Neither does it weaken it or lessen it in any way. That's a topic which Paul was still having to tackle decades later, as you'll see in many of his letters that he wrote. There is a righteousness, a high degree of moral uprightness and goodness, which this law demands, verse 20, but don't look to the likes of the Pharisees to try and find it. You won't find it there in the likes of them. All that is actually required of the law, for everything that you need, you need to look to one place and one place only, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfilment of it. From verse 21, as we continue to make our way through uh, this sermon that Jesus preached, Jesus is going to provide us with practical insights as to what it means to actually keep this law. And what he has to say, probably many find as startling today as his listeners did 2,000 years ago. 
over the next few weeks, we'll find ourselves considering all kinds of different topics which Jesus will lay before us as Christian men and women. But before we get there, it's really important to understand what it is that Jesus puts before us here in these verses. When you do get to verse 21 and those which follow, if you simply set off on your own and try to live up to it, you will fare no better than the Pharisees. And you're completely misunderstanding what it is that Jesus is saying. You need a righteousness which is better than theirs. You need a righteousness which is different to theirs. You cannot fulfill the law by your own effort. Only Christ can and has. And so first, you need him. Because it's all fulfilled in Christ. Well, let's consider these thoughts under three headings this morning. First is this, number one, what the law reveals. Now, this law, this moral law of God, it's actually a display of the perfect nature of God himself. Because everything that the law requires of us is actually a reflection of who God is. Let me bring two verses to you. The first is in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4. It says this, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, breaking God's law. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, better known verse probably. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, in both of those verses, there is the idea of falling short. Paul mentions it explicitly in Romans 3, but actually the word sin means to miss or fall short of the mark, like shooting at something and missing the target. And it's not just that you're out of aim. You don't even reach the target. You fall way short of it. You can't even get the distance let alone the aim. You're way off. And just the word sin has that uh, implication and application to it. So if sin is falling short of all that God requires of us in his law, and sin is falling short of God's glory, there must be a sense in which the law of God and the glory of God are connected because sin is falling short of both those things. It's falling short of the law and it's falling short of the glory of God. So there must be a connection between the two and there is. The glory of God is the essential being and nature of God in his holiness and in all of his sinless perfections. Now, when God made man and woman in his own image, what that means is that God created a creature in whom the moral law of God would operate. He didn't put that into any of his other creatures here in this world, but he put it into Adam and Eve. He put it into men and women. We are the only creatures in this physical world 
that has this distinctive capacity to understand and know and operate under this moral law of God. That requires you to have a mind that can think and reason and formulate ideas. But more than that, it requires you to have a soul and a conscience. And God puts that in you. Now this does not mean that people are little versions of God. God does not share his divinity. God does not share his godness with anyone. He alone is God. But aspects of his moral nature have been conferred onto us, upon man and woman. The moral character of God would characterise the life of men and women. And when lived out in human flesh, what that life would look like is the life that's described in the Ten Commandments. That's what it looks like to live your life according to the moral law of God, to live a life that is a reflection of his good character and nature. What you read in the Ten Commandments is a really good description of the life lived by Adam and Eve before they fell into sin, if you wondered what that might have looked like. Read the Ten Commandments. That was their life before they sinned. Wholehearted, undiminished love and faithfulness towards God in the way that Commandments 1 to 4 describe it. Because God is love and he is perfect and undiminished and faithful. And that's part of his glory. It's to be reflected in Adam and Eve. The law says, you shall not steal. Because not to steal is the character of God. He's not a thief. And that's part of his glory. That's a part of his image in which we were made. The law says, you shall not bear false witness. Because God is truth and cannot lie. And that is part of his perfect glory. The same goes for the other four of the six commandments. They're not just randomly plucked out of the air. They're not something just completely new and novel that God just decided to impose upon us for no particular reason. They're a reflection of himself and of his own goodness and righteousness. Each of those laws are based upon God's own attributes, which are his glory. Hence, at verse 48 of Matthew 5, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect, living according to his moral law, a reflection of his own goodness in you. God's law reveals the nature and character of God. God's law is a window into his glory. And these things are what it means to be in his image. For you to fall short of his law is to fall short of his glory. And that, secondly, is what the law exposes. So the law reveals something, but the law also exposes something. What it, what it exposes is just how far we have fallen. I remember in my youth, I can't think that, that far back, in my youth being at a church lunch and baked potatoes were being passed around 
And my friend who was sat next to me with a little bit of a twinkle in his eye took the one potato that was twice the size of all the others. A bit like those ones that we get served at Kevin Lee on the church weekend. And you think that one potato would feed the whole table. Well, it was a potato like that that my mate took. As I say, a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, but how we all laughed as he cut it open and it was rotten, black, right through the middle and as hard as a stone. The Pharisees had a kind of righteousness, but it was just like that potato. Everything to the human eye looked wonderful on the outside, but on the inside they were rotten through and through. Up to a point they'd managed to engineer the outside. But they hadn't even begun to get to grips with the inner person. The law reveals the nature and character of God and the law exposes the reality of our sinful nature. There's a great chasm between me and the keeping of God's moral law. Now, if we're honest, we like to think that we are capable of demonstrating just how good we are if we put our minds to it. Maybe you don't. Maybe that's just me who thinks that way. But I'm sure we see that all around us, don't we? Surely, I can be good enough. I can be good enough for you to at least like me. I can be good enough so that from time to time you might even find something to praise me about. And... Surely I can. And of course, all the mantras and philosophies in the world are constantly saying, yes, of course you can, of course you are. The idea of positive reinforcement, praising good behaviour rather than punishing bad behaviour is extremely popular today. It does have some merits but it's riddled with problems too. The problem is if you take it too far, you find yourself in the situation where any kind of criticism at all becomes a heinous crime and an unpardonable sin. How dare you? How dare you say a critical word? Smacking a naughty child makes you be equated with a child abuser. How dare you suppose you have the right to punish your own child? That's where that thinking ultimately can lead if it's not held in check. In such an atmosphere, if the law of God is to be considered at all, then surely the law of God ought to be looked upon as something which proves how good you are. Look how close I've got to it. Surely, surely close enough. But that's just a Pharisee. That's a Pharisee. And Jesus says, no, no. Don't look to them as an example of righteousness. The law is designed to reveal to me just how far away from being good I really am. Now that's not something the world likes to hear. That's not a message the world wants to contemplate. But that's what the law of God exposes. 
just how far away from being good I really am. A few weeks ago, the runner Mo Farah made the news headlines because he had failed to reach the qualifying time to run the marathon in the Olympics in Tokyo. So he's not going. Well-meaning people might say, ah, but he gave it his best and that's all that matters. Not for Olympic qualification it isn't. The qualification time for the Olympics isn't do your best. It's very specific and you either reach it or you fail. Ah, but he came close. You might look at me and say, a lot closer than you would manage, and true. I will never compete in the Olympics, never would have, never could have. But actually, this year, Mo Farah is in exactly the same boat as me. Even though he could achieve a better time than me. But neither of us are going to Tokyo. And actually, look at what Jesus says in verse 19. It's very revealing. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now that really and truly takes the wind out of our sails. We would rather hope that there are those who, well, those who are least in heaven, they are the ones who miss most of the targets by the biggest distance. But Jesus says, those who are least, you only have to miss one of the least of them. And you're amongst the least in heaven. Surely we would like to think, whoever breaks lots of the big important commandments, they're going to be the ones who are the least in heaven. But no, just one of the least. This is what the law exposes, our inherent lack of goodness within us. See, spiritually, we're all in the same boat, just like me and Mo Farah are in the same boat when it comes to running the marathon at the Olympics. And people might, might try to make all kinds of distinctions between me and Mo Farah. But at the end of the day, the fact is, we're stuck here in Britain. I'm actually rather glad to be here and not in Tokyo right now. As it happens, nothing against Tokyo, but we're in the same boat. All of us, before God, are in the same position. We're all in the same situation. All of us. need a righteousness which is not of ourselves. The law does not make us sinners, it exposes our sinfulness. And this is why, as Jesus continues from verse 21, he goes beyond merely our outward behaviour and he starts to talk about what's actually going on deep within us. 
He talks about our heart, attitudes and motives. So on the face of it, verse 20 leaves us in a position of complete despair and hopelessness. How on earth can anyone expect to fare any better than the Pharisees did? Well, all would be hopelessness and all would be despair, but for one thing. And that's verse 17, where Jesus says, I have come to fulfill. I have come to sort out your lack of righteousness problem. The righteousness you need, I've come to deal with it. And thirdly, what we see in what Jesus is saying here is where the law points. What the law reveals, what the law exposes in us, but also where the law points. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, one of the key points in that book is to make clear that in that ceremonial law in the Old Testament, all of the way that Israel should worship and all the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff that was involved, all of that had only ever been a temporary situation. Admittedly, it was quite a long form of temporary. It lasted 1,500 years. And in our thinking, that's not temporary. But actually it was and it had always been temporary. And more than that, all of that Old Testament worship was figurative of something which was yet to come and that one day would be accomplished. And it was all pointing forward to one person who would be the fulfilment of it all. All of those things, they're described as types and shadows. We might today say they were pictures and illustrations pointing towards the, the real thing and the true thing. Those Old Testament things never were the reality. Jesus is the reality and now we have him. We no longer need all of those things. So all of those things may now be set aside. That's clearly taught in the New Testament because now we have Christ. Many repeated sacrifices have been replaced by one once for all sacrifice. The blood of animals has been replaced by the blood of Christ for the cleansing of sin and of the conscience. Many Old Testament priests have been replaced by one great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this being accomplished through him. He is a man who was born under the law. In other words, he was born under the requirement to live his life according to the moral law of God, just like you and I. And he's the one perfect man who perfectly kept that law. He lived on this earth, in this world, and perfectly fulfilled God's law. Everything that's required of a man or woman in the Ten Commandments, the Lord Jesus Christ did not break even one, not even the least of them. Everything was fulfilled in that man's life. At every point, where we have fallen in our sins, he stood firm in righteousness so that that righteousness might be credited to us. That's what we've been learning in our studies in Romans on Sunday evenings. Being a Christian is not about being a Jew or a Gentile. It's not about 
obedience to the law in the pharisaical sense of it. It's all of faith in Christ who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. The Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. There's none of the old ceremonial law in his letters written to Christian churches, be they converted Jews or converted Gentiles. And we've reminded ourselves of how Paul himself, as a former Pharisee, said that all of those things which he once held so dear, he now counts them as rubbish for the gain of knowing Christ because of all that Christ has fulfilled. What about this issue of us falling short? What about that issue? This failure of ours, this falling short of the mark and the target? Well, the law's intended to expose just how terrible our position before God really is. And then it's supposed to do one other thing, and one alone, and that's drive us to Christ. Paul says it's our tutor to lead us to Christ because he is our only hope. We look at all of these things and we say, he's the man I need because look at what he has done. He has fulfilled all the requirements of the law for us. He's lived that perfect and sinless life so that his righteousness may be imputed to us. But of course, he's also died so that all of our guilt under the law might be paid for and dealt with and forgiven. And the Bible then calls us to confess our sins, to turn from our sins and to trust in Christ, to believe in him, to take hold of him by faith because he has fulfilled that which we need. God promises that when we do that, he declares over every single one, You are no longer guilty. You are no longer condemned. My son's blood has cleansed your sins. You are forgiven all your sin. uh, Forgiven, pardoned, cleansed, set free from sin, set free from its guilt because Christ has fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law for men and women like you and me. Without him, we would have no hope. And it's important to remember that in all of this, Jesus hasn't just done something for us. He has and he continues to do something in you. Not just for you, in you. That image in which we were made, but from which we have terribly fallen away that image is beginning to be restored in each one of us in Christ who is the hope of glory a glory being restored and a glory to be fully recovered when we get to heaven we're not immediately made perfect and sinless ask my wife and my children But the law of God gets written within our hearts. We're changed and we are changing. One day that change will be completed. Listen to two verses from the Old Testament. Here's Jeremiah in chapter 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. See, it's, it's internal. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This covenant relationship with him. Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes because you've been changed from the inside out. And once the inside's been changed, it cannot help but come out. The Spirit has been put within you. He causes you to walk in God's statutes. He, he puts the desire within your heart to do it. He gives you the volition to do it. He gives you the grace and the strength to do it because it's all in and of him. You're not on your own. You will keep my judgments and do them. Who, me? Yes, you. In Christ, by my Spirit, I will do the work in you that you may and the point is that these truths are speaking about the reality of those who have turned to the one who has fulfilled the law for them and who now have been given new life in him, Christ. Is that you? Have you turned to Christ that you might receive this new life? To be able to say, the old is gone. All things have been made new in him. I am now a new creation in Christ Jesus. I am, by God's grace, what I am as a Christian man or woman. The emphasis in Jeremiah and Ezekiel is not on what I have done or tried to do. The emphasis is on what God has done and is doing in me. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We all with unveiled face, the, the veil of sin that blinded our minds, it's been lifted, it's gone. We see clearly now. That song, isn't it? I can see clearly now. Well, that ought to be sung by Christians because they're the only ones who do. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This great transformation that's taken hold of all of our lives in Christ. And this whole sermon, not this one, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is preaching, is addressed to men and women like you and me, whose hearts and minds and lives have been transformed and are being transformed from glory to glory in Christ until we all get to glory in Christ, which is our ultimate hope. The law of God, the nature, the character of God becoming more and more established within us as we grow in grace and in the knowledge and love of Christ, which will be fully completed by him 
when we all get to heaven where there is no sin. This is the righteousness which exceeds that of the Pharisees. It's that righteousness that we have in Christ. That perfect declaration of righteousness in our justification, which is a once-for-all declaration of God. And then this, this growing in grace in the Lord as our natures and characters are changed and transformed, as our minds are renewed by God's word. That ongoing process of sanctification within our lives. A righteousness which ensures entrance into the kingdom of heaven because it all begins with faith in Christ. A righteousness which is not of ourselves, but which is of God according to the riches of his grace and which was planned and promised by God the Father which has been secured and established by God the Son which is applied within us within our souls, within our hearts by God the Holy Spirit the three in one working working our salvation then and only then are you actually fit and capable of heeding all the exhortations that are going to continue coming to us from verse 21. Because you, therefore, are one of his sheep. And you're listening to the voice of your shepherd. Is that you as we continue through these, these verses? One of his sheep. You've heard his voice. You hear his call. You're following him in his righteousness. And that is what Jesus will continue to expound as we make our way through this sermon. What it means, what it looks like to truly have newness of life in Christ. Because all is fulfilled in him.